0: This is Fine, episode 1.3, The Media is the Message.
1: Hi, Finders. Today we're going to be talking about the media and the way that it frames our political discourse. We're going to jump in with a discussion of the Schorenstein Center's analysis of the election, but we don't want to focus on the election exclusively. We really want to talk about the ways that the media shapes our discourse moving forward as well.
0: The article that we're sort of starting off with today, it's uh, going to be a little bit different than our last two shows. We're not going to go super in-depth into any one specific piece. But the focal point that we're going to begin from is this new study, or actually a series of studies, two studies, in fact, from the Shorenstein Center at Harvard. Uh, the Shorenstein Center is a, uh, an organization that focuses on uh, the media and politics specifically. And they have a new study that, that came out in Dece- on December 7th. And the title is provocative. It is News Coverage of the 2016 General Election, How the Press Failed the Voters.
1: I think one of the basic takeaways from the Shorenstein pieces, and, and there's one on the general election, and there are also, uh, and we'll post the links to this, three other pieces covering the primary season and the convention season as well. And sort of the top line takeaways from this are that Horse-race coverage dominates other types of coverage. Uh, Policy issues are not covered frequently at all. And in this campaign in particular, there was a tremendous amount of negative coverage for both candidates and for Hillary Clinton specifically at sort of all points. Trump had negative coverage in the general election, but during the primary season, he received a lot of favorable coverage. I'm not sure that any of this is groundbreaking, although it is very interesting to see the statistics laid out. They looked at 10 different news organizations, some daily newspapers and some TV news organizations, and then they had a independent group rate the positive or negative tone of the coverage. Uh, and so that's that's the way they generated their data.
0: The studies are very long, and I don't think that there's a lot to be gained from like reading them you know, line by line. But as Jeremy was saying, the important takeaway from this is that... First of all, the coverage overwhelmingly was negative, and it was negative about everyone and everything in relatively equal proportions, which is quite remarkable. As the study itself notes, I just want to read this one little paragraph from it. What it says is, it's a version of politics that rewards a particular brand of politics. When everything and everybody is portrayed as deeply flawed, there's no sense making distinctions on that score, which works to the advantage of those who are more deeply flawed. So you can imagine who that benefited in the general election.
1: And it's actually interesting. The only election they can find which was similarly dominated by negative coverage of both sides was 2000. Uh, Of course, the Bush-Gore election, where you also had this popular idea uh, among, I think, both the left and the dissatisfied center, that there was no distinction between two candidates who very clearly, obviously, had great distinctions in terms of their capabilities. Sorry, any Bush- Partisans out there. In this piece in particular, this sort of groundswell of negative coverage played very well into Trump's hands. I think there's another point, though, which Shorenstein doesn't talk about, um, that you and I were talking about just before starting recording, which is that the equivalence in tone also masks a deep disequivalence in content. So you have similar negative perceptions of Clinton's emails, a non-scandal. Again, the Bush administration deleted 22 million emails actually relating to public business. Whereas you have Trump um, having things like tax evasion or being a sexual assaulter or defrauding tens of thousands of Americans or, you know, pick one uh, that were treated actually got less coverage than the email scandal in particular.
0: It's really remarkable because if you go back to the, I think this was the the cover, the New York Times coverage, the front page when the Comey letter drops. And, you know, now we know that there was absolutely nothing there. It was just totally empty, you know, of any actual meaningful content. And now apparently actually Huma Abedin is saying that they didn't even serve the warrant properly. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that whole thing is remarkable when you think about the fact that um, they had this computer for about twenty four days before Comey actually sent it out, and it's first of all Comey breaks department policy, and then I know we're promising not to relitigate the election yet again, but it's it's still so incredibly sore for me how how uh, insane the last two weeks of the campaign played out,
0: and and when this happens, the New York Times publishes this. Amazing spread, whatever uh, whatever date this was, the twenty eighth or twenty ninth of October, where you know there are three different stories about Clinton emails on the front page, and I believe that the settlement, the Trump University settlement, happened within the next several days, and that settlement was on a twenty. So. Whatever you want to say about Clinton as a as a a candidate, it doesn't like these things are clearly not equivalent. And I'm going to steal a line. (laughs) I want to steal a line from like to to my everlasting shame from P.J. O'Rourke, who called Clinton, uh, you know, she's wrong, but she was wrong within the normal parameters. I mean, whatever you want to think about this, this email thing, like it was even if it's malfeasance, it's malfeasance within like the standard parameters of what we expect from politicians, like defrauding millions of people or thousands of people out of millions of dollars is definitely not within the standard parameters. And yet the coverage of them was just completely skewed in inappropriate directions.
1: Right. And I, I want to be clear here as a Clinton partisan, there's no means to say that had the Comey thing not happened that she would have won. Counterfactuals are always easy. She ran a deeply flawed campaign and was a deeply flawed candidate uh, as much as I supported her and and still do. But I But I think that this points to and what we want to go to here is a deeper problem about the way that media coverage really is very focused on trivial issues and and seems sort of unable to get beyond a particular surface excitement level of coverage. And that's not totally true. There were some organizations, Shorenstein actually points and says, hey, the LA Times, only 7% of their Clinton coverage focused on the scandals, you know, whereas Fox is four times as much. A full third of, of Fox stories basically are about scandals with Clinton. But it's even in the the ways that um, they're unable to parse the sort of depth of, of these. And and I think one of the things that's very challenging for me to understand is I get why CNN does it. You know, CNN has a queer profit motive. OK, they put Trump on because they made a billion dollars like that's on Jeff Zucker's soul. Like, fuck him. But what I don't get is why The Times does it. And and I think this is a really challenging question because, you know, Jerry, you were pointing out right before the show the people on the Times almost certainly their ideological preferences are more aligned with Clinton's than with Trump. I would say they're probably indistinguishable from Clinton. Like that's my sincere belief. And I and I and I really don't think that the Times beat reporters are going out there thinking like, how many dollars can I make? It's it's just not CNN. There's a clearly different incentive. So what what is going on there?
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. I think that there are different competing incentives. One of them is just that. A story is better than no story. And especially if you can write a story about a prominent figure, like that's just kind of a thing that writes itself, right? I mean, you can milk this for a long time and, uh, you know, whether you should or not is sort of, you know, that's an ethical question, but the day-to-day incentives definitely bend in the direction of like, we want to do this. I think that's one factor. I think the second factor is definitely a cultural factor in that um, there's just this idea that has permeated the media. And it has been really not has just permeated the media, but it's been part of media consciousness for a long time of like trying to balance things that are sort of maybe inherently like not balanceable, right? Like you put on the one side of the ledger, you put, you know... This kind of malfeasance on the other side of the ledger, you put a different thing and like it all kind of evens out. And this is a, I think, an ideological commitment on the part of, you know, people who work at The New York Times that is, I'm sure they don't even like consciously process this. But it's definitely part of this idea that, well, you know, not even that there are no real disagreements, but that the disagreements are kind of all. Of the same magnitude and they're all of the same character. And it's really just, you know, if you report this thing, you got to report this other thing.
1: Right. And we were talking about this to some extent in the previous episode. There's this idea that political arguments are not values-based arguments, but are arguments over access to knowledge. And so if people believe a certain thing, then they are... Automatically accrued some sort of significance because a lot of people believe it. And, you know, the, the clear example here is climate change, though I think there's been a great deal of political pushback from correctly from the left saying, hey, you can't treat this as equal time, although it still gets done that way. And I think that when you have a, a political campaign, it may just sort of defeat the normal mechanisms. I mean, people talk about fact checking um, and people talk about, you know, ways in which Uh, They can try and put some girders around this sort of idea about equivalence. But again, instead of people talking about, hey, you know, there are actually different values that animate this political conflict, it's just, oh, well, let's present uh, sort of the supporters and we'll allow readers to make their own decisions. The worrisome point for what it's worth is that in this campaign season that started to change, in part because one of the candidates was so deeply allergic to fact and motivated uh, factlessness as a political strategy, and I'm not sure it mattered. So th- there's a second order thing here, which is that going forward, maybe the media will get a little better on fact checking or sort of contextualizing things. They did a not great job in the campaign of maybe they were evolving towards it. But on the other hand, if you have political audiences that that don't care roughly about uh, the fact contact or the contextualization, you know, maybe that self-correction is too little too late.
0: And I think you can see a lot of this problem in uh, the new public editor of the New York Times, Liz Spade, who's just kind of been awful. I, she's been awful. And it's and, really, really and, terrible. And it's, and it's just like, when you read what she's writing, it just seems like there is no, you know, people want her to address questions of journalistic ethics. And, you know, she's, she published this kind of response to people who were Hectoring uh, the New York Times over, for example, calling Steve Bannon a combative populist uh, in that, well, you know, you guys are offended that we didn't use the right label. But it's not just the question of using the right label, right? It's a question of. How do you accurately describe somebody who has the kinds of views that
1: Steve Bannon has? Bernie Sanders her... is a combative populist.
0: Yeah, Bernie Sanders right. is a combative populist. But like, you know, Bernie Sanders is not running a media network that provides a voice to white nationalism. Right. So that's not an accurate description of him. Whereas she that also... is an accurate description of uh, Steve Bannon.
1: Exactly. She also went on, was it Fox and Friends or Tucker Carlson show? Oh, Tucker of... Carlson. Yeah. Right, And she goes... Those journalists who tweeted out things, one of which, by the way, was just a retweet of an Atlantic headline. You know, those journalists should oh, yeah, she, she attacked
0: her own journalists. That's real good. Uh,
1: right. I mean, it, it's a little bit, I, you know, I get the point of having an ombudsman. And I was frustrated at times with Margaret Sullivan's role. Uh, she was a previous public editor. But boy, by any comparison, um, you know, the, the new public editor of The Times, it seems to be actively working against journalistic integrity, saying literally, what does it matter what we call things? Oh, yeah, what's the semantic matter at all? Like, what? what's the value? What's the thing when you are running the paper of record? It, it actually seems like she's some sort of plant made up by, um, you know, Fox News to to destroy the times from within.
0: Yeah, I think the the climate change, you know, the climate change debate is kind of a really great example of this, because there really isn't any debate, right? This there's, there's a widespread scientific consensus backed up by reams of data. And then there's cranks on the other side and people who are paid by oil companies to essentially cast out
1: on the science. And even right. the best people paid by the oil companies, to be clear, are sort of like, oh, anthropogenic forcing is probably happening, but there's more complexity in the model. It's not even like one of those things where they think, you know, the sign of the signal is wrong. It's just there's more vol. Right,
0: like, right. So to talk about somebody like Myron Ebel, who's now, you know, being put forth as the possible head of the EPA as like a climate skeptic, it really does a disservice to the actual facts of the matter. Again, this is, this is sort of a a trend that you see over and over again, where there is not really like there, there, there are facts on one side and there are, and on the other side, there's just kind of like a whole bunch of nothing. And yet the way that it's presented is that well, there's actually like some substantive debate here, and there is no substantive debate. It would, it's not accurate to call somebody like Myron Ebel or you know Scott Pruitt, who's been, uh, I guess, is he the new I can't. I can't keep I track of all on these the, dudes.
1: I think he's on the transition team looking at EPA, but he's the attorney general, right? from From Oklahoma.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Scott Pruitt like made his, uh, you know, made his living basically not made his living, but like made his political name suing the EPA, and so he's very clearly being brought into government to basically just dis- like you know bring his expertise in like destroying the EPA into the EPA. So, like you you have to report those things as they factually are. You can't gloss over these factors. It, and and the, but the way that you read this coverage is it's like, well, you know, there's like there's questions. There's questions about it. I'm like,
1: right. and there's there's some desire I think to fight the argument of the other side. It's like the opposite of a straw man argument, right? It it's it's the times wanting to paint each side in the best possible light. And so choosing the arguments, which may not be the ones that really animate um, the people who actually support these political causes or are working in these roles. And I, I think that's a real problem because, again, for one thing, I think it's deeply actually condescending and insulting. Like, like if you oppose, we, we talked about gay marriage last time, we talked about abortion. You know, if you oppose some of these things and you have... Deeply religiously grounded beliefs that are motivating your views and your views about differences in peoples, for example, and and the rights that they should have access to. It it feels completely disingenuous to roughly write out your opinions out of the discourse and say that anyone who describes accurately what you believe, you know, they're just calling you a bigot. I, and I think that's that's really dangerous. And I, I think this is true on climate change as well. There are people who believe that. Climate change is not happening for religious reasons, and there's a very large, well-funded movement that believes that climate change is happening, but wants to stop any mitigation effects because they think it'll hurt their oil and gas business. And those are totally reasonable things to describe, and yet that's climate skeptic does does no work there, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't actually describe the political coalitions that work against... And I'm not calling anyone a bad... No one is a bad person for holding these views. Well, maybe the oil company. Uh, I disagree. All right. Fine. <laughs> we can assign some moral value. But... But I think it's it's it it doesn't help either to it just doesn't help to obscure the reasons they actually think or, or what they actually think.
0: Uh, I I totally agree with this. And part, part of me, I was just thinking about, uh, again, about this question, you know, like, why does this happen? You know, why? Why is the coverage framed the way it is? And one of the hypotheses, one of the other hypotheses that I've been sort of kicking around is that. To some degree, it's it's like the people at The Times want to be seen as non-ideological and, you know, fair and whatever. And, you know, when you go to the conservative media and you look at their media commentary, what you see is that they just they think The Times is full of communists. They don't. They don't have any respect for the New York Times as an institution. Uh, There's this great profile of Steve Bannon that was written in 2015 in Bloomberg Business Week, and he just straight up says, we're going to publish this Clinton cash story. We are going to go to the Times and we're just going to we're going to set up so that they have like exclusive access to it. And they're going to cover Clinton with like 15 different reporters. And that is like literally what happened. It's not an exaggeration. That is actually what took place. And if you didn't know that you were being played beforehand, like here is this guy a year out from the election,
1: just straight up admitting that this is what he's doing. Right. We think the Times at all is not at all an impartial institution. They're liberal, but they believe that they're impartial. And as a result, we can dupe them. And here's how I'm going to dupe them, says it. And then yet at the Times, we're still having this argument like, hey, maybe we should try and be an impartial institution. It's like, you're not. The Times is a liberal paper. They have deep biases. They're reporting on the rare places where my beliefs don't intersect with the current left liberal consensus annoys me. And- but it, it annoys me more, this sort of pretend virtue. Like, it is not a virtue to obscure political disagreement, um, because, I, and I don't know who they're appealing to. You made the analogy to the failed, unfortunately failed strategy of the Clinton campaign pursuing Republican moderates. Like, the Times is talking to a pretend, I don't know, David Brooksian voter who's going to give them some, like, yeah. you know, Bitcoin for being a, a, a good impartial Dogecoin for being impartial. <laughs>
0: I I did not have uh, uh, any cryptocurrency in in my theory. I will say that. But uh, maybe there's this idea that like we can get these people to view us as legitimate journalists. And the truth is that the conservative media will never view the New York Times in a favorable light. It is just not going to happen. Like these people have no respect for you and now they've played you and now they will continue to have no respect for you. And they
1: also understand their point too. I I think the Times does itself a a gross disservice by really wanting to rise above in the ecosystem and wanting to appear noble. And that sort of nobility actually doesn't serve, I think, their readers. And, you know, maybe there's a call for a sort of model of adversarial journalism. But I think that, you know, the Wall Street Journal, which is a very conservative op-ed page, but actually is a somewhat neutral news organization. Like, I think the journal cares less about impartiality than the Times, which is funny because the Times is, you know, actually a liberal paper and the journal isn't. I think the journal, because of its intersection with conservative media, sees its purpose as like being a business paper, which means that actually sometimes it's in the center. And it's not at all confused about trying to, uh, you know, stand astride all of, you know, American media and like look down on it. Like it, it's advocating for positions that it thinks will uh, enhance its readership and sell more papers.
0: Yeah. And and, and similarly, I, I think there's, you know, to build on that, there's no there's no benefit in going on Tucker Carlson's show like that is it's not going to do anything for you. It's just going to earn you the ire. Not only not only are conservatives not going to respect you, but now anybody who any anybody who's left of center like sees that and sees, you know, you attacking your own journalists for tweets and is like, oh, my God, what am I giving my money to if I'm a New York Times subscriber? I mean, that's like you're you're poisoning the, the same base that is like to any extent motivated and like paying for your product, which right. seems crazy.
1: And again, this quality issue, you can be a quality publication and have advocacy positions. So, you know, you don't have to be the Huffington Post. You can be the nation and the Times could be the left leaning organ it is and just be sort of more moderately conscientious about the way that it actually articulates that. But this isn't just about the political place of the times within our media ecosystem, because I think that there are many organizations that would, that are, in fact, less partisan than the times that still operate under this sense of, it is a norm to give equal time to both sides on a on a political issue. We will treat political issues like they're like even ones involving fact as not having fact and 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 sort of setting them up as well. Different people think this, and I think that this is really problematic to to sort of move forward past the election. And this goes to uh, the Brendan Nyhan interview in, in ProPublica, where you have a president who's so deeply committed to using violations of facts and norms in the service of his political program. Like, if we had a politician like Obama, then you'd think, well, okay, you know, this sort of equal time thing is pernicious and has these bad consequences. But at the end of the day, like, who cares? Obama's not using his Twitter feed to spout explicit lies and motivation of a political platform. But Trump is, right?
0: You know, there's something that Brendan Ihan says, kind of in the extended interview, which is really worth listening to. It's I think it's quite good. that. You shouldn't give up on fact checking. I mean, there's been a lot of this talk about like fact checking, and you know, is this like is this correct? Um, I think that like obviously it's important. Like it's important for the facts to be correct, but you don't like it's not a point scoring exercise. You can't just go through and you know tick the box that says this is right, this is wrong, because what the job of a good journalist should be is to put that into a particular context. Right? It's not just a series of claims, and then you just adjudicate between the claims. Like the claims exist in a particular context. And I think that you know, one of the things that Nihan says in his interview is that like journalists need to be aware of that and they need to situate this debate again in a larger in a larger context.
1: Right, there needs to be a frame, that, right, for, for statements. Because if you just report which I think the New Times public editor is saying we should do, basically, like Trump said there were 3 million illegal voters who voted, right? This is obviously a, a horrible idea. But even if you just fact check it and go, you know, we can't find any evidence that there were 3 million voters who voted illegally. Like, I think what Nyhan's saying is that you have to not just do that fact check, but put the fact check in a frame of, You know, hey, Trump is lying and he's lying for this political advantage because he, you know, and here's sort of the broader context to do that. I think what's interesting about that is, although he doesn't say it explicitly, it's very hard to do that within our traditional American-style mm-hmm. non-adversarial press, right? To have sort of longer-running themes over news articles where you contextualize not just like, you know, Trump lied on the CNN Chiron or whatever, but like Trump lied in the service of X project is, is a more sort of editorial nuance.
0: Right. I mean, here's the exact, the the poll quote from from the ProPublica interview that I think is is kind of a good summary of what he's saying. This is Nihan. The burden of proof can't be on the media to disprove every crazy claim that the president-elect makes. The story here is the president-elect yet again made a baseless claim. That is the story. The story is that the president-elect is more factually responsible than any political leader in the United States in memory. That's the story. The details of exactly how this particular claim is, is false are really at some point a second-order concern. Again, if you listen to the whole interview, there's there's more there. Uh, I think it's good. What I think Nihan kind of doesn't really address is that... The way that we got here is not i mean there's this tendency i think in uh not just in media criticism but in just kind of discussing american politics in general of kind of living very much in the present day that we woke we woke up today with president-elect trump and you know our shitty media can't like get a handle on him and like what are we going to do but this is really a story that goes back you know decades and decades to um reporting on vietnam to reporting on watergate to reporting on iran contra like all of these things are they are endemic to the structure of the media and the incentives that it experiences on itself and also endemic to its ideological commitments so it's not something that today you know we have this problem although it is exacerbated by you know financial dynamics for example in in the media with the internet we should we'll probably talk about that as well um but it's a long-running
1: story, right? And I think that's why. I mean, you had brought up uh, Rick Perlstein's piece, and I think Perlstein probably is better than almost any contemporary American historian of of the right um, and the sort of Hubert Nixon land. Um, he's a, sort of a great chronicler of the ways in which the right has evolved in over the last fifty years in America. And I I, I agree with that. I guess the the thing that I would maybe raise as a little bit of bulwark against it. Yes, you see this type of media even handedness at the root of, for example, the media buying the Bush administration's lies about the reason for getting into the war in Iraq and weapons of mass destruction um, and, right, you know, lies around Vietnam, all the things you just mentioned. I think, however, that at at the risk of being mocked by various organs, you know, there is actually a difference with Trump. This de-democratization, you know, he is explicitly called for many things that those previous bad presidents, Nixon, Reagan, Bush, W, did not do in terms of violence against political opponents. And I think the mobilization of untruths, you had W mobilizing untruths to pursue a war in Iraq for a variety of reasons, a neo-imperialist project led by members of his cabinet. But I don't think you had him mobilizing untruths in the service of naked political power in the same way. And I think there is something very anti-democratic and very authoritarian about making your followers believe and repeat lies to distance them from, the, to sort of put them into a post-truth type situation, right? Like, you can't trust anyone else. I'm the only one with, with actually access to the truth. And here's my version of the truth. And I'm, I'm sort of, you know, inculcating you into this, uh, you know, sort of leader-like perception of reality.
0: I, I think that these are all points on a continuum. You know, if you look at the, if you look at media during, uh, during the Bush years, it wasn't quite as naked of an in, you know an invocation of all these sort of racial tensions that that Trump just you know makes into just everyday conversation but at the same time you know you had a lot of coverage that was for extremely hostile for example to people who were protesting the war right and and that was you know that those protests in some ways were a a contest over political power and so definitely there was an environment of attempting to discredit dissent right it was not and so but but the problem is that every single like every single time that you let somebody get away with something, then the next person who has even fewer scruples is going to come along and they're going to try to get away with more. And so the fact that, you know, let's say maybe Bush wasn't as bad on this issue as Trump is, is sort of like. It's not really exculpatory of the media because they kind of, you know, they 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 let him do what he wanted, and then the next guy comes along and says, "Oh well, there's no check on me." Like I, I can, I'm,
1: just, not tr- I'm not trying to to be. No, no, I, the media. I understand. What that. I'm trying yeah. to say though is that I I think there's a difference of kind and not degree because Trump's belief in or lack of belief in rule of law I think creates a much more dangerous situation for. I'll, I'm willing to grant you this a media climate that has existed, right? The media climate of Judith Miller and the The Times coverage of Iraq, and then the Times coverage of of the Bush and then Obama expansion of the surveillance state, is the same media climate as we have today. That didn't change, but now I think we we do have a functionally more dangerous leader. Reagan could have easily gotten us into nuclear war, sure, but I think Trump is still actually really more dangerous and more dangerous to all sorts of institutions, and maybe like calls on on our institutions to exceed themselves. And instead of exceeding themselves, and maybe this is your point, they've been on a sort of steady continuum of decline.
0: Yeah, I, I, the the Pearlstein article is really um, really worth a read, and it contains another example that I, I think is really quite interesting and. Uh, this is in points, the Washington Spectator. In the Washington Spectator. That's right. That really points to kind of the larger issue with covered like media discussion about politics in general. And it's this he tells a story of NPR's interview with uh, somebody who worked alongside Mike Flynn, who is now the what is he up for uh, national the security, national advisor. security advisor. Right. Steve Inskeep, the interviewer, asks um, this woman Sarah Chase a bunch of questions, and sh- you know she says like, "What?" W- he asks her, "What was Flynn like?" And she says, "Well, he was kind of a messy and disorganized guy." It's it's more telling when you actually listen to it. I mean, it sounds like they're kind of, you know, just joking about about this dude. And then uh, finally, at the end, he like asks her, "Well, like, what do you think about his appointment?" And she says, "I'm terrified. Uh, this is this is horrible." And he asks her why, and uh, she says, "Well, because." his job is to make things run and flynn can't make anything run and that's like that you know if that is that's the takeaway right that's that should be front and center because here's a person who was like literally in the same office with him they like shared a desk or something and she's like oh my god this guy is just like a total mess right but we don't have time to discuss this because oh well the program's over and it's it's like
1: right pearl jokes (laughs) This sounds like something they could have dwelt upon at le- greater length than what Peanuts character he most resembled, Pigpen. Like, right? It, it's insane if, if if you actually think someone in the position of possibly the most important uh, foreign policy advisor to the president is fundamentally incapable of leading his job. Maybe maybe you know, run with that first, right? Like, right,
0: and it's and it's this this idea that like these people are. They're covered not as if they were individuals who are going to come in and influence policy and they're going to make particular decisions and those decisions are going to have like real ramifications in the world. But it's like a cartoon you're talking about. I mean, this, this, this is literally like a parallel to peanuts in here. And it's like, well, you know, it makes it sound like it's a joke, like it's a game. And it's not a game. Like this is a dude who is, you know, tweeting out his like the weird conspiracies and shit. And like he's going to come in and he's going to be the national security advisor. And his job is to integrate data right into a cohesive assessment of like national security and where is he going to go? Like, this is a
1: legitimate worry. you know, Right, whatever. he's going to go to Reddit for, for like, threats what... <laughs> against our, our country?
0: and And so this is like a serious thing with serious ramifications, but it's not covered that way. And this should be concerning, kind of like, you know, in my ideal sort of media environment, this would be concerning to anybody, regardless of kind of their political ramifications. Because you have to figure that, you know, if... In, in a future where, you know, I don't know, like a potential Democratic president is tapping. I, I, I don't even know who, like, what was his dude Who will dude Kanye doing?
1: West appoint to be NSA Yeah,
0: like, well, like, yeah. I was actually thinking somebody like RFK Jr., who's like, just total, a total nutter, right? Like, if, if that's a dude who's like being tapped for, I don't know, like health and human services, like, that would be a real problem. That would be bad. And we should talk about that because it's going to have like bad ramifications for, for real life people.
1: Thanks for listening. That was part one of episode 1.3, The Media is the Message. We'll be back in two weeks with the concluding part. And I'd like to thank, as always, our talented sound engineer, Greg Young, uh, Jerry, and um, thanks all for listening. Have a wonderful new year.